Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. One of the most famous lines in the movie Forrest Gump, arguably in all of cinema in the last 50 years, begins with the immortal phrase, life is like a box of chocolates. It's so famous, in fact, that I don't even need to finish this particular line, but I can tell you that every time I pick up a new volume on true crime history, getting ready to learn about the deeds and misdeeds contained therein, that feeling Forrest Gump had comes back again and again, and the novelty never wears off. Reading Norma Lewis's new book on crime history in Michigan, I felt like I was holding one of those massive cartons of dozens of different multicolored chocolates that you get around Christmas with every chapter promising and delivering something new and savory and unique. Norma Lewis's latest title, Michigan Scoundrels, Rogues, Rascals, and Rapscallions, just published by the History Press, is a journey through the lesser-known side of the Wolverine State. You may think of Michigan simply as the land of beautiful lakes and great college basketball, but there is a darker element to this part of the Midwest that might just surprise you. We are thrilled to have her join us to take us on a journey to those lakes and to the bodies hidden beside them. After all, you never know what you're going to get. Norma, welcome to Crime Capsule. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we are so delighted to have you. Now, I'm just going to jump right in and ask one quick question right up front, having uh, read a little bit about you and your background. Is this, in fact, your 10th book? Actually, it's the 10th Michigan book. I've also done 10 children's books. Okay, so let's just take that number and say, Norma, is this your 20th book? Yes. <laughs> How on earth uh, I mean, first of all, that's amazing. And uh, I'm so delighted that you can take some time for us. I know that researching and writing is very time consuming, and I'm sure you have other projects on the go. But tell me, I mean, how, how did you get to 20? What was your route to 20 books over the years? How did you get started? Well, I always wanted to do children's books, and they're they're extremely competitive. And it took me a long while to break into that. But I found the Arcadia Images of America series, and I wrote a few books for that, and they just require that you live in the area you're writing about and come up with a new idea, so that was how I broke in, and then that kind of grew into Wild Women of Michigan, and then Scoundrels just kind of seemed like a a companion volume or whatever to that. Scoundrels are more fun to write about than nice people. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with the adage that well-behaved women rarely make history, right? Um, right, exactly. I believe it was also uh, Tolstoy who said that all happy families are boring. <laughs> uh, so, yes, write about the dysfunctional ones, please. <laughs> but, um, no, that is, that is remarkable. Now, for listeners who may not be aware, the Images of America series is... Uh, primarily based on the visual record of historical events and places. So researchers will scour archives for photographs or picture postcards or any kind of visual record that we have of what was going on in a particular place at a particular time and then present that with extremely detailed captions regarding uh, the people or the events in question. They're wonderful resources. I use those in my own book and got a lot out of them. Uh, tell me, what were what were some of your Images of America series uh, for, for the press? The first one was Grand Rapids Furniture City. 
and then the Dutch heritage of Kenton, Ottawa County, a legendary locals of Grand Rapids, and Wyoming, Michigan. Wyoming is a suburb of Grand Rapids. And so were you able to make use of local historical archives or other researchers' material? Where did you find these old images that you were working with? Oh, I found them in museums and historical societies. The, the state of Michigan has a wonderful library, and the Library of Congress has also been very useful. Uh, they have incredible resources and actually uh, very easy to search through, which helps, you know, if you're looking for something in particular, their their metadata, as they say, is uh, is quite, quite good as a, as a rule. Uh, so let me ask you this, Norma. I'm going to ask you a terrible question. This question is the worst question, but I have to ask it. With 20 books under your belt, this is number 20, between numbers 1 and 19, this is like asking you which is your of your favorite children, you know, uh, which is the the favorite book that you have worked on which which book have you enjoyed working on more than any other oh scoundrels and wild women of michigan just flat out that no contest no contest when you were doing your research what kind of collaborations do you engage do you have folks who you can reach out to at these particular societies or librarians that you have worked with over the years for the the, the decades that you've been uh, doing this particular work. Um, where do you send out your kind of feelers when you have a new topic that you want to explore? Well, the Grand Rapids Public Library has an amazing local history department and also covers the rest of the state to a lesser degree. So I start there. And then the University of Michigan also has incredible resources and Michigan State University. And typically when you take on a topic, do you find yourself traveling all over the state or do you find that your resources tend to be fairly concentrated in one particular area? Well, most of my books have been concentrated in one particular area. So, but for the last two, I, I did travel around quite a bit and, and that's the fun part. I always find something better than what I thought I was looking for. Well, I'll tell you this. You definitely found a treasure trove of uh, scalawags and rascals. And I believe the subtitle of, of your book is Rapscallions, which is one of my favorite words. <laughs> Mine too. It's, it's marvelous. Michigan Scoundrels is your newest title. It's like a, a smorgasbord, a buffet of some of the most colorful characters to ever grace the upper and lower <laughs> peninsulas up there. And I have to say, you know, you have you have killers. Of course, you got some good old fashioned, you know, murderers of the of the garden variety type, but you also have fraudsters and you have bank robbers. And you have in in a I think what must be a first, certainly for crime capsule, fake kings. You have a collection of of false monarchs in here. Right. Tell us about those. Well, the first one was uh, James Jesse Strang. He decided he was going to be the head of a, a Mormon group. And when the Mormons were forced out of Nauvoo, Illinois, and the two leaders were killed, uh, he took over. He saw that as the opportunity of a lifetime, and he proved it. He was able to dig up proof. Of course, he planted the proof, so that wasn't too difficult. He said an angel told him where to dig, but he didn't really need any help because he had buried it. So, <laughs> And it said there was, it referred to the Smith brothers as the leaders, but there was one true prophet, and that, of course, was Strang himself. Of course. But that wasn't quite enough. He didn't just want to be head of the Mormons. He wanted to be king, so he had himself crowned 
in a ceremony on Beaver Island. The people there weren't too happy about that. They resented him taking over the Mormons as well as taking over the island itself. So he did get murdered, but uh, it was worth it in his opinion, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, I think the someone could probably run the numbers on how many monarchs, real or otherwise, have been <laughs> deposed, you know, from their thrones over the years. And it would be interesting to see, you know, percentage murdered or ousted versus, <laughs> you know, those who died peacefully in their chambers, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, chalk, chalk one up for the... Uh, you know, for the bad guys here. I love it. I love it. Oh, the other one was rumored to be the illegitimate son of a German king, but he wasn't. But he kind of liked that idea, so he just referred to himself as a king anyway in Roger City, Michigan. Oh, my goodness. And was there ever any proof for or ancestry sort of paperwork, or was there ever anything that suggested a noble line? No. He may have fathered a lot of illegitimate children, but this guy wasn't one of them. <laughs> well, you know, just get a bunch of suckers around you and, and folks will believe anything. So, you know, just <laughs> right. roll with it. Just roll with it. So so apart from the fake kings and all these other colorful characters, I mean, you have such a wide variety of individuals that you have collected for this particular volume. I want to ask you just a couple of questions about the book as a whole. I mean, first, how did the concept for Michigan Scoundrels come together? Where did you get the idea to sort of bring all of these disparate people together under one roof? Actually, I saw another book in another state in that series and thought, I bet we have just as many here. So sure enough, we do. So I proposed it to History Press and, and they accepted it. And it was so much fun to do. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, as you're tracing these people through all of their deeds and misdeeds, you know, just what are they going to do next is, <laughs> is always the question, isn't it? Right. So how did you find them? Okay. I mean, what was, how did they come to sort of land in your lap, so to speak? Well, I just started looking at local histories. Like I live in Grand Haven. That's kind of between Grand Rapids and Muskegon. And I found the Bidwell brothers in the Muskegon archives and they weren't just bank robbers. They robbed the Bank of England. <laughs> they went way beyond the pale. Were their files just in the archives? Or, I mean, what, what exactly did you find for them? Well, I found a website about them that just told their whole history. It was in New York State somewhere, but they were definitely Michigan people. They lived in Norton Shores, which is a suburb of Muskegon, yeah. about 12 miles from where I live. I have to confess, Norma, as a Southern boy who has had a number of friends from Michigan over the years, you know, end up, you know, in my hometown and so forth, I always thought of Michiganders as the most industrious, perhaps, of the uh, upper Midwestern states. Um, and it was funny because as I was reading your book, I, I realized, you know, all the Michiganders that I knew were always in sort of, you know, just building barns on the weekend for fun, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, as I, as I read your book, I realized that, you know, Michiganders are also industrious in uh, less than illicit activities as well. I mean, you have some incredibly hardworking crooks in your state. So, can you explain that to me? Well, not really. I did make mention in the book that if some of those people had worked that hard at something legitimate, they probably would have been even more successful. I live in southwest Michigan, and that area is heavily populated by the, the Dutch heritage, and they are extremely hardworking. 
most of them farmed, and there were also some entrepreneurs who built some of the leading companies in the area. Well, it's a fascinating place, and you have taken us on uh, quite a journey through it. Now, honestly, to sort of switch tone a little bit here, uh, it's it's not all fun and games in your book. There's plenty of fun and games, but there's actually uh, quite a lot of very real difficulty and challenge. Um, and I wanted to look at what may actually be the single most difficult case in the book right up front. I wanted to ask you about Andrew Kehoe. This chapter occurs very early in your book, and you suggest that this may be the first documented school bombing in American history. Yes, he was a pretty horrible character. Tell us a little bit about him and you know his origin, because his origin story is actually, it helps us a little bit to, to explain some of the things of why he did what he did later in life. Well, he was born on a farm in Tecumseh, Michigan, and he went away to school. He was always a tinkerer. He liked working on farm equipment. That was more fun than actually farming to him. And he became an electrical engineer, and he he was always kind of a misfit, though. he People didn't warm up to him. He had a kind of a cruel streak. He was cruel to animals in a couple of cases, killed one of his own horses, and killed a neighbor's dog because it annoyed him. He liked explosive. He put on one of the most impressive fireworks display that the city of Bath had ever seen one fourth of July and people complained and some of them thought it was wonderful it was just Andrew being Andrew but others complained and his wife says oh it's just a little boy having some fun so the little boy ended up having way too much fun with explosives he was one that they would call if they wanted tree stumps removed or something he was one they would call to come and blow them up he was fascinated with blowing things up I mean speaking as a former you know, kid in a somewhat rural area. Um, you know, <laughs> sometimes you got to make your own entertainment, Norma. Uh, you just got to put that <laughs> right. out there. But but let me but let me ask you in seriousness. I mean, is this part of Michigan where he grew up? I mean, is it known for say ex- extreme isolation between the farmsteads? Because as I was trying to understand why his interests would take this particular direction, I thought, well, maybe maybe he just didn't have friends, or maybe his schooling ended so early that he was just sort of left to his own devices, and that that sort of created a, a little bit of a, of a pathology there. Can you help us to understand that? Well, actually, Bath is a suburb of Lansing, almost. It's a, a small city, but it's, it's very near the state capital, so it wasn't all that isolated. He probably killed his stepmother before he blew up the school. That was never proven, of course, but she died in a fire, and he threw water on her, presumably to put the flames out, but it was an oil fire, so it, it escalated it, and he was just a very wicked person. Do you have any sense of why that might be? I mean, what what was the root of that or the origin of that. Was he mistreated as a child or was there something that happened? There is no nothing to verify that, so probably not. He he did have an injury that left him in a coma for two weeks, and some people said that might have been responsible for it, but he probably was just a psychopath because he exhibited all the characteristics of a psychopath. He had no compassion, 
no ability to relate to others. He was a loner, a tinkerer. He'd rather be monkeying around with machines than associating with people. And what, what kind of farm was he actually on? Was this uh, livestock? Was this produce? Was this orchards? Well, he had horses, but I assume it was mostly fruits or vegetables because he did enjoy riding around on his tractor all day and tinkering with his tractor more than doing actual work. Yeah, well, I've known a few uh, known a few teenagers to whom I might be related who have much preferred uh, tinkering rather than doing any actual work. So as far as that, that aspect of human development goes, you know, uh, I think it is still out there in some, in some places. Um, now, let me ask you this. Um, did, did no one observe, say, with the cruelty to animals or, you know, with his sort of penchant for, for explosives, did no one in the community sort of say or do anything about that? Or were they just, I mean, were they really just kind of live and let live? Well, the incidents were probably very far apart and probably most people didn't know about either one of them, let alone both. But I had something in the manuscript to begin with that said, but they deleted it. The editor took it out. But that TV show, uh, Evil Lives Here, where it says if the person closest to you were a monster, would you recognize the signs? And there were signs with him, but nobody recognized them. His lack of compassion towards his stepmother, for example. Have you ever wondered about things that go bump in the night? Or objects in the sky? Or other things you just couldn't explain? Then join me, Jim Mauer, on my podcast, The Mauer Report. Each week, you'll find engaging conversations with guests who are authors, historians, and scholars who lend their expertise as we discuss current events and venture into the fringe and paranormal. The Mauer Report hits controversies head-on, yet remains conversational, and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major podcast platform. You know, the other thing that struck me about his upbringing, which felt very paradoxical and uh, sort of unresolved, Norma, you know, it, it, it felt like such a mystery to me trying to understand it. You write that he grew up as a, as many people in, in uh, you know, the upper Midwest do, he grew up a devout Catholic. Yes. And what was interesting about that, you know, is that as you got to know him, even in the first part of his life, we're not even at the bombing yet. We'll come to that, you know, in, in, in a moment. But, but, but in the first part of his life, you know, what really struck me is that if you think about the core of the Catholic Church, you know, works of mercy, caring for the poor, right? <laughs> sort of, you know, attending to those around you and to their needs, right? He's a devout Catholic on paper, and and yet in all of his behavior towards, you know, those around him. I mean, nothing could be further than the truth. <laughs> well, he was Catholic. I don't know how devout he was. Nellie was very devout. He was born Catholic and raised Catholic, but obviously the basic tenets didn't stick. With some of your scoundrels, they profess no 
larger moral system to which they subscribe. They just, you know, life is what it is, and you make the most of it, and get get what yours, get what's yours, and take anything that's not nailed down, and you know, exactly. And, and, and yet here, you know, you had the at least the presumption of a, sen- a right. system of kind of you know moral accountability, and and yet it. it it was never lived out, you know, in any particular way. You also write, which is kind of interesting, that he, and this kind of helps us get into uh, the school bombing sort of situation as he developed his grievances, but you also write that he had major, major frustrations with uh, the taxation system in his local area. He, he really hated taxes, which is understandable. Oh, <laughs> I mean, let me just say, you know, like I understand that perspective has not necessarily gone away. Um, but, you know, I was always a fan of Oliver Wendell Holmes's, you know, claim that, you know, I like taxes, they buy me civilization, right? <laughs> anyway, um, moving, moving past that, this guy seems to have an absolute vendetta against paying for things that he did not receive any kind of direct benefit from like school systems. So tell us about that. Oh, exactly. Well, he didn't have children, so why should he pay school taxes? That was his rationale. It's just that simple. There's there's no <laughs> there's no right. level of nuance that he would have ever entertained, you know, that maybe making, you know, in educated citizens in your local community can can inform, you know, good decision making over generations. Does that does that not work? That probably didn't enter his mind. But what what we really took exception to was the new consolidated school. They closed all the one room schools and built one big consolidated school and he thought that was a complete waste of money. And then they kept wanting more money to add equipment to the boys' shop and to the girls' home ec rooms and, and even playground equipment and you know that was also frivolous to him and just totally unnecessary. Okay, I, I can I can I can see how that might have garnered some frustration there. You know, some additional uh, grievance. Now, do you think that alone was enough to sort of put him over the top, or were there other things which led to this plot that he concocted? <laughs> I think he was just kind of a nut to begin with, but that's just my opinion. Uh, well, they they do make them in all shapes and sizes. There's uh. <laughs> There's no, um, no, no doubt about that. So take us, take us to that day then. Help us to understand what happened on the day of America's first school bombing. Well, his frustration level was at an all-time high. Everything was going against him. He had served on the school board and had hoped to slow expenses down a little bit, but he was in his last term. He'd also been the town clerk for a short time, but that was temporary. He was defeated in the election to keep the posts, so all of his influence in the community was drifting away. His wife had tuberculosis and was in and out of the hospital. That was an expense he really didn't feel like he could afford. And he thought that his mortgage was going to be foreclosed. It wasn't because his wife's aunt held the mortgage, but he didn't believe that she wasn't going to foreclose. So he felt like he was out of options and he just did the only thing he could think of. Now, there's an important fact here, which we should add for context, because, um, you know, one might wonder how did this homegrown pyro 
maniac get access to this school building, and he was the custodian. Right. I forgot to say that. When they imposed the tax, he said it would ruin him financially, so he asked for a part-time job as custodian to pay the taxes. That was how he ended up there. So he had keys. I mean, he, he could come and go as, as, he, as he wished, right? Oh, right. What exactly does he do? And if I remember correctly, this is right around, this is we're sort of the late 20s now, 1927, 1928. Right. What exactly does he do with these? First of all, where does he get the explosive material? And then secondly, what does he do with it? Well, I'm sure he, we talked about how he acquired it before. and I don't know for sure, but I'm sure it was pretty available. And he just bought it and went into the building and People actually saw him in the building doing things, but they didn't realize what he was doing. They thought he was just doing his job. So he wired it, and the next morning, the whole town woke up to two really loud blasts, and there should have been three. He did another area that never detonated, fortunately. It would have been even worse. Forgive me if I'm remembering the figure wrong, but I think you said it was 300 pounds of dynamite was what he ended up. Right. <laughs> I don't even, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine just, you know, the explosive force that that would generate. And was school, school was in session when the explosions went off. Right. It was almost the end of the school year. It was May, okay. mid-May, and people hurried to the building when they heard the explosives to see if they could help. And one woman mentioned passing him, and he tipped his hat and waved. He was a monster, but still a gentleman. So he could say, I mean, there's there's carnage everywhere. I mean, several several portions of the building have kind of you know imploded almost and um, collapsed. And and you know what what did the rescue response look like? Well, people thought he was there to help. Everybody else was there to help. And he hated the school superintendent, so he motioned him to come over to the car. And the superintendent, of course, thought he was there to help. He got in the car, and Andrew just pointed a gun at the back of the car where he had a load of dynamite and exploded the car and killed both of them and five other people. I'm giving away the ending here. You didn't want to do that. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. There's trust me, where there are a dozen other scoundrels in your book and I did want to tell Andrew's story from start to finish because I think it is so uh so compelling and and has so many unanswered questions. You know, I, I think any reader who is out there who wants to try to understand this more deeply absolutely needs to take a look at your account because because we do we are left wondering what was going through his mind. And and one of the the main questions that I had for you, Norma, you know, with respect to the this particular story was so he sees his nemesis, he sees the the superintendent whom whom he blames for so many of these problems. He brings him over to the car. Kehoe, the bomber, he shoots the dynamite that he has wired his own car up with. Right. Did did he did he did Kehoe intend to kill himself? Oh, I think he did. Oh, one other telling thing is that after it was all over, they found a sign he had written and posted on one of the fences that said, criminals are made, not born. So he knew what he was doing was criminal, but he felt like his circumstances led him to do it. You know, I'm not a criminal psychologist, um, but as I was reading your account, it, it really was interesting to me to see how 
enormous of a victim complex this man had. I mean, he just blamed mm-hmm. everybody else for right everyone his, but himself everybody but himself yeah absolutely that was just running through every single page you know of your account of him and this last little parting gesture that sign that you mentioned you know that's just so it's so in keeping with that mentality right you know it's right always always somebody else's fault but no I, when i when i read that passage about the the very end, the last explosion, right? He'd wired his own car and he killed his nemesis and killed himself. I had actually wondered briefly whether, you know, he was standing at such a distance that he had intended to kill the, the superintendent by shooting the, you know, shooting the car, but not himself. Maybe he didn't see the opportunity to do it otherwise, or he, he was caught off guard. I, you know, there there was no suicidal tendency in the rest of your account of him. So that moment sort of stood out and made me wonder, like, what's actually going on here? You know, I think he probably intended to kill himself, and getting the superintendent was just a bonus, just the icing on the cake. He just happened to be there. But that's just my opinion. Was there anything else that was left behind at the scene that helped to illuminate his motives or anything that was at his farm that was left? No, not really. One thing everyone was concerned because just prior to that, he had insisted that a a package go to the post office. And so they think about that and go and run to the post office and grab the package and take it out in the parking lot and very carefully open it. And it's the school board ledger where he was the treasurer. So I think he did intend to kill himself and wanted to make sure the the ledger was turned in and meticulously balanced, like he did everything. It's very strange. So if he hadn't planned on dying, I don't think he would have done that. I mean, is that like a parting shot? Like, yeah, I mean, I that's a why why go to that trouble? It was his last responsible act. Yeah, why go to the trouble if you're just going to end it all? Though, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He just felt responsible for doing his job as treasurer. It makes no sense. It makes no to a normal sense. person. Right, exactly. <laughs> and you write that there were the final death toll was about forty five people, mostly mostly children. The vast majority of those were children and Right. Thirty eight children and the rest were adults and then Kehoe himself, of course. He had killed his wife the day before. She was part of the death toll. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> more psychopathic behavior. But let, let me ask you, in this day and age, when we have tragedies um, on school campuses or in university you know, campuses and so forth, and um, students lose their lives, frequently there is a, there's a period of mourning and then there's a period of memorialization, Norma. I mean, you know, often monuments are erected or plaques or buildings might even be repurposed in, in some particular instances to kind of um, honor, you know, the dead. This was the first event of this kind in this country. What was the aftermath? How did the community come together to remember this event or to mark this event or to mourn and memorialize this event. Well, in the school, there is a a small memorial museum, if you want to call them that, that shows artifacts in the typical classroom and and photographs. So it is remembered there. Sure. Yeah, they actually have artifacts there. Well, it's a necessary act, and I think it's, you know, one of these things that is so important because the wounds run so deep that it can take decades 
and decades, you know, for them to heal. One of the most important things that we can do is tell the story of those who lost their lives that day. Right. But it had a lasting impact on the survivors, too. Absolutely. I had a book booth at an event over the weekend, and I was talking to someone who, whose aunt was one of the children who survived, and it had such an effect on her that she never wanted to go out of her house after that. She married and never had children, but almost never left home. The fear, the uncertainty, of course, absolutely. Fear and maybe a little bit of survivor guilt, like why did I live and they die? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a difficult story and it's a challenging story, but it's it's also very powerful. And I thought that your description of the way that the members of the community and the rescuers, you know, came together in its aftermath was was very gripping. And so it's important to remember you know, those efforts as well. Thank you for taking us into the dark heart of that part of the state, because I think we do have to shine a light on on these things to see them more clearly. I'm glad to say, Norma, that next week we will get to spend time with someone who is a lot more fun to hang out with. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) And I'm looking forward to that very much. Thank you for uh, taking some time for us this week. And we will be back next week to spend... Uh, the afternoon with Silas Doty. So we will pick it up there. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Norma Lewis, author of Michigan Scoundrels, Rogues, Rascals, and Rapscallions, published by the History Press. Order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week for our final episode in this season of Crime Capsule with a special guest, Dr. Jamie Goodall, author, researcher, historian of pirates, and, wait for it, a pirate herself. We're ending this season with a bang, so join us. See you then. Listen to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. It's a fun show about weird stuff. New episodes every Wednesday, yeah, eggheads. I'm Art. And I'm Andy. And Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time is a podcast about conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, unsolved mysteries. We're, we're going to be discussing the Kennedy assassinations. Oh, yeah, that's his nickname, finger-banging Bob Lazar. Give me some aliens with some good frickin' spacecraft. The whole enchilada. <laughs> the only thing bigger than Bigfoot's feet are our egos. If you like simulation theory, ancient history, egghead science, and Mandela effect, that kind of stuff. So check it out. New episodes every Wednesday. All the links you need on MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. And we'll see you in the bunker.